So I want to ask you a question as we start this morning. How many of you like jigsaw puzzles? Raise your hand if you're a fan of jigsaw puzzles. A couple of you. Good smattering. When our kids were younger, our family went through a jigsaw puzzle phase. How many of you have gone through a jigsaw puzzle phase if you're not a fan of jigsaw puzzles? Okay. For our family at its height, we were attempting the challenging, and, and if this isn't a big deal, to save my ego, okay? At its height, we were attempting the challenging 1,000-piece puzzles. Remember, my kids were small, okay? The 1,000-piece puzzles. We'd spend an afternoon or an evening trying to put all the pieces together. And if you've ever done a jigsaw puzzle, gone through a phase, it's your thing, one thing we learned that you know is early on, when you're trying to assemble a jigsaw puzzle, the box top with the picture on it is a crucial part of the process. (laughs) Without the big box top picture, It is difficult and it is confusing to try to put the puzzle together. Sometimes the way they make them now, it doesn't even matter what's on the front. It's still confusing and difficult to put together. But you need that picture to be able to fit the pieces together. And I I bring this up because sometimes reading and understanding God's word, for many of us, can be like working with a jigsaw puzzle. We engage the parts, you know, we know certain verses, we've read certain books, passages. We engage the parts, but we struggle with grasping the whole. We have a hard time grasping how everything fits together. And like a jigsaw puzzle, when it comes to the Bible, in order to make sense of the individual pieces, we really need to be able to see the big picture. And that's what this next year is all about. That's what we're doing as we explore the Bible from cover to cover, from beginning to end, through the narrative treatment of God's word called the story. This, I want to be clear, this story, this book, if you've purchased it electronically or hard copy, is not a replacement for the Bible. That's not what this is. It's a resource to help us understand the Bible. It's like the top of the puzzle box that helps to give us the big picture. And as a brief aside, I want to just mention that there's different ways you can enter into this journey with us the next year. And inside on the sermon notes part are the four different ways you can engage into this experience of reading the Bible from cover to cover in this next year. But we are engaging the story. And last week, we began our journey. And as we began our journey, we were considering the framework around which the whole Bible is built— Specifically, Genesis chapters 1 through 11, or the beginning of life as we know it. And if you weren't with us, or by means of a refresher, what we learned is life once was only good. God made us for perfect perfect relationship with him and with each other. And he made us for perfect relationship without pretense, without shame, without hiding. We were created in his image. And that means that God gave us the privilege and the responsibility of reflecting and representing him in filling and cultivating on his behalf, flourishing the beauty and life of all that had been created in his name. But as we also looked at last week, it all fell apart. God did not, in creating us, creating everything, God did not force his love upon us. We were offered the choice to trust him, to be empowered, to be equipped, to be guided by God, or to do it all on our own, to not trust God, to deny our need for God. And we chose, our ancestors chose, total autonomy. Total autonomy. Autonomy is a part of creation, but total autonomy, that choice to say, we don't trust you, God, we don't need you, God, that's rebellion. 
That's rejecting God's love. That's what we call sin. And as we saw, sin causes everything to spiral out of control. Life suddenly became hard and painful. Shame and blame fractured our relationship with ourselves, with each other, and with God. Good became overshadowed by evil as violence began to reign. Death came into the world. God brought a worldwide flood and it cleansed the earth, but it did not remove the stain of sin. A new family, a new creation through Noah quickly divided, leading up eventually to the scattering of all of humanity geographically and linguistically with the Tower of Babel. We were left with the realization in the midst of how life began, of what we once had, the disobedience and rebellion that began as a choice became the problem of sin, became a virus which has been part of our DNA ever since. To simply kind of encapsulate this idea of this virus without always meaning to or wanting to, sometimes wanting to, meaning to, but even without always wanting to or meaning to, we ruin everything that God has made, including ourselves. And we left with a bit of a cliffhanger last week In the midst of all of this, the question was, does God have a solution for all this? Is there a way by which we can be saved from ourselves? And the answer is yes. This is the good news that we often talk about. This is the gospel. And this gospel isn't first revealed in the New Testament. I briefly mentioned to you from the very beginning, God has a plan to rescue and reclaim his creation. In Genesis chapter 3, which we looked at last week, in verse 15, there is this cryptic promise of a wounded victor. One who is born of a woman who will crush the power of sin by conquering and conquer its deadly bite by enduring it. The question is from this one verse, this picture that begins to form is, how does this plan unfold? Where does it all start? And that brings us to today, the second part of Genesis, as we find out the answer to that question as we experience a new movement in the story. And I want to encourage you to open up to Genesis chapter 12 in your Bibles. Today, believe it or not, we are going to be covering Genesis chapter 12 all the way to Genesis chapter 36. I did say that out loud, yes. As you're finding Genesis chapter 12, let me set the scene for you. At the start of Genesis chapter 12, a thousand years have passed since the flood. The wide angle lens, if you picture it that way, of the genealogies that fill chapters 10 and 11 begin to narrow with chapter 12. They begin to focus on a singular person, a descendant of one of Noah's sons named Shem. And this descendant of Shem is a man named Abram who will later be known as Abraham. And this camera lens focuses on this man named Abraham in a place called Ur. Once in Sunday school class, a teacher was asking one of the students who was talking and not really paying attention, where was Abraham from? And the student said, Ur, and she said, correct. (laughs) Abraham was from Ur. And Ur was this port city that's situated in the fertile area between the Tigris and Euphrates River. It's in the same general area, interestingly enough, the camera lens is focusing on this same general area where that infamous Tower of Babel was almost built. And here, with this one man named Abraham, God initiates a conversation. He initiates a conversation with a man who's pushing 75. 
And God calls Abraham to leave everything he knows to follow him, to go to a country Abraham has never heard of. And we're going to listen into just a part of that for today's sermon. Genesis chapter 12, you have those Bibles open. Starting in verse 1, let's hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said, had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his neighbor Lot, his nephew, excuse me, Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you weren't with us last week, and if you were, I hope you're seeing this, once again, we see how this God works. In the beginning, and hear it again, here again, how this God works, what this God desires, relationship. This God is about relationship. God invites Abraham into a relationship with him. He initiates the biblical word with a broader understanding of what this relationship is. This is relationship is. He initiates a covenant, a partnership filled with promises that God says he will deliver. Let's review them real quick from what we just read. God says he will make Abraham into a new nation, a great nation. God says, I will make your name great. He will make Abraham's name great. God says, I will bless those who bless you and your descendants, and I will curse those who curse you and your descendants. And fourth, God says, I will bless all the nations of the world through you and the nation that comes from your family. So to sum up, to just put this in one sentence. What's God's plan? God's plan is to rescue and redeem his rebellious world through Abraham's family. That's the plan. And that's why the rest of the first half of the story, what we call the Old Testament, that's why the rest of the first half of the story focuses in on this one family. Doesn't really engage what's going on everywhere else. It focuses in on this one family that eventually becomes known as the people of Israel. The wounded victor of Genesis 3 that we talked about briefly is going to come from this family line. We're starting to get another piece. God's plan creates a new nation, but don't miss this, but God's plan in creating a new nation ultimately looks to create a new world. Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, will be the conduit for God's relationship with the rest of the world. And that helps us to understand that one part about blessing those who bless you and cursing those who curse you. It's kind of like if you're with us back to Genesis chapter 1, the tree of life. The tree of life is being rooted in relationship with God, in life, God's purposes. God has said, this family, through Abraham and his descendants, that's how I'm going to bless the world. So if you're not connected to that family then you're not connected to the blessing. If you cut yourself off from that, then you're cutting yourself off. You're putting yourself in, the, in, a, bad, in a bad place. A positive relationship with the people of Israel means you're in a positive relationship with the people of God because that's where he's working through. And if you're not in a positive relationship, then you're cutting yourself off from the Lord. So, right just in chapter 12, we have more detail in terms of the plan. And, and, and really... The story of the Bible is learning about how all this plays out. We have to keep reading 
in order to watch and understand how God's relationship, his promise, not only with Abraham and his family, but with this world develops. And so how does it all go from here? How does it all go just in these next 25 chapters? Brace yourself as I'm briefly going to summarize 25 chapters of the Bible for you. How does it all go? Do things get off to a promising start? The answer is no and yes. On the one hand, the answer is no because we witness in the next 25 chapters that I'm summarizing for you the repeated failure of Abraham and his family. Collectively, they all continually make bad decisions that not only complicate and mess up their lives, but also seemingly put God's promise in jeopardy. I told you last week that as we just continue on through the story, this is never going to change. One of the things we continue to see is the power and the, just the, the extent of the problem of sin, of just how bad it is. And we see that with Abraham and his family. So a brief sampler of 25 chapters to, to draw this out. In the midst of his travels, following where the Lord is leading, Abraham, in fear for his life because other men are attracted to her, betrays his wife, not once, but twice, lying to others and denying he's even married to her. How many of you want to stay in that marriage? Abraham's wife, so it's not just about Abraham. I told you everybody here, bad decisions, seemingly putting God's promise in jeopardy. Abraham's wife, Sarah, well beyond menopause, laughs out loud in the face of God's promise of a child after all these years. But she doesn't just laugh. Sarah takes matters into her own hands and out of God's. Sarah arranges a surrogate for Abraham's promised child. She grabs one of her servants named Hagar and says, make it happen. And from this one decision, we have the birth of Ishmael, the father of the Arab people, the patriarch of Islam, as well as the source of a family feud that continues to this very day. Finally, 15 years later, when Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90, God delivers the child he promised, the descendant he promised named Isaac. Now, moving along, Isaac, for his part, ends up repeating his father Abraham's betrayal by denying his marriage to his wife, Rebecca, in fear for his life when other men find her attractive. The, ap the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Both these guys have a problem claiming their wives. Later, Isaac and Rebecca have twins, they have twins, twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And even though when Rebekah gets pregnant, God tells them in advance who the inheritor of the promise made to Abraham will be, even though God tells them, both Isaac and Rebekah still decide to play favorites. And they foster a deep sibling rivalry between the two brothers. As for Jacob and Esau, well, if you know this story, you remember it. Esau, the older brother, is kind of impulsive and not really all that smart. He impulsively gives away his birthright as the firstborn for a bowl of stew. And then later, will swear revenge on his brother Jacob. 
Jacob, uh, Jacob though, <laughs> is a piece of work, right? Jacob, do you remember Jacob? Jacob is an antagonist from the start. And when I say from the start, I mean he literally is grabbing his brother's heel coming out of the womb. You talk about your kids, don't, you know, don't touch your brother or sister, separate, right? Coming out of the womb, Jacob's already starting things up. Jacob's very name, in fact, means he cheats. And if you remember this story, cheat, he does. Jacob cheats his brother Esau out of his family blessing by deceiving his aging and blind father into thinking he is Esau and not Jacob. And in this move that tears his family apart, Jacob runs away. Jacob runs away, and let's just keep on going here. Jacob ends up taking four wives, even though he only loves one of them. Many children are a result. Jacob has, in fact, 12 sons and one daughter. And as a result of having four wives, can you imagine that that was a happy home? There's increased spousal tension. There's an incredible sibling rivalry. And of course, there's family drama. Jacob, in fact, doesn't learn his lesson until the tables are turned on him. And that's sort of how this story closes out in a way. The tables get turned on Jacob when his uncle Laban does better what Jacob has done so well. Laban deceives and cheats him out of years of his life. And suddenly, Jacob is a humbled man. And God, in that moment, wrestles with him and renames him to Israel. It's one heck of a soap opera. I mean, I, I'm giving you the, the condensed version, but if you haven't read these 25 chapters, I am not kidding you. Anything you watch on TV is nothing compared to this. So on the one hand, like I said, things do not get off to a promising start. People get hurt. Lives get messed up. And over and over again, it looks like God's promise is in jeopardy. But I told you also that while the answer to if things get off to a promising start is no, it's also a yes. It's a resounding yes. Why? Because what we also see in these 25 chapters is in the midst of all these bad decisions, despite generations of repeated failure, God remains faithful. Faithful to his promises and faithful to the relationship. The relationship that he wants. Again and again, you see in those 25 chapters, the Lord continues to rescue Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their families. Again and again, you see in those 25 chapters, God reaffirming his commitment to their family and to his relationship with them. I didn't do too bad. That was, you know, that was not bad, 25 chapters. I'm pretty good there. <laughs> so on the one hand, it gets off to a pretty shaky start because there's just these bad decisions that seemingly continue to put God's promise in jeopardy. But on the other hand, we get to see that God is faithful. Faithful in rescuing his people, faithful in continually in deeper ways reaffirming his commitment, his promise, his relationship with them. There's three insights that I want to take away from this part of the story. Three things that I think we can pull from this in our own relationship with each other and with God. Here they are, and I'm going to break them, up, break them down. The three insights are, first, God's plan of salvation involves ordinary, imperfect people like you and me. God's plan of salvation involves ordinary, imperfect people like you and me. That's number one. Number two, God's plan to save this world is bigger than you and me. It's about all of us. And three, our part in God's plan, in rescuing, reclaiming, and renewing the universe. Our part in that is just about saying yes. 
saying yes. So let's break it, up, break it down. Number one, God's plan of salvation involves ordinary, imperfect people like you and me. If you were to pick people to start a new nation, let alone to be a part of saving the world, whom would you pick? If you were to pick people to start a new nation, let alone saving the world, whom would you pick? I think I would, would say that most of you would pick, in some variation, gifted, well-educated, faithful, forgive me, young people. You wouldn't be picking these guys and gals, would you? I mean, we're not going to start by calling on a God who doesn't even believe in God, right? Going back to the genealogy, Abraham's father was named Terah, and Joshua later tells us, later book, Joshua later tells us that Abraham's father Terah was a craftsman who was deeply involved in the false religion of his region. Translation, he manufactured idols for a living. Abraham was a pagan, man. Let's put that aside. Abraham, can we be honest about this? I mean, I mean, no offense. Abraham was an average Joe, right? He was a man of no importance. Abraham uttered no prophecy prior to God calling him. He wrote no books. He didn't sing any songs. He gave no law. He's just an average guy. And then, and again, at the risk of offending people, but if we're honest, if you want to populate a nation, you pick a bunch of 20-year-olds, Right? Not a husband and wife who are closer to the century mark than they are far away from it. And let's not even start, get started, if we just want to get off Abraham and Sarah's back for a little bit, let's not even get started about investing in a guy who's a born cheater. I wouldn't trust Jacob to borrow my car, let alone carry on the promise of building a nation. Nonetheless, and I want you to really sit in that for a second, here we stand, here we stand. Every observant Jew, every knowledgeable Christian can tell you immediately the three nation builders of Israel. Again and again in the story of the Bible, God personally identifies himself with them. His calling card becomes, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is where we are. This is who God identifies himself with, even though they are not the most likely or the best qualified candidates for the job. Because you see, in selecting Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and his wives, God begins to reveal a pattern. His plan of salvation involves ordinary, imperfect people. Not the smartest not the most beautiful, not even the most trusting. God's plan, in other words, involves putting his faith in us, choosing and using ordinary people, unlikely people. And this is the beginning of what we're, what we're gonna see as a trend as we study the story. This is not gonna be an exception. This is gonna be the norm. God will do this kind of thing over and over and over again, using the least likely and seemingly most unqualified people to accomplish his purpose and tell his story, our story. Don't believe me? Abraham was old. Isaac was insecure. Jacob was a con man. We've talked about that. Leah was unattractive. Joseph was a slave. Moses stuttered. Gideon had anxiety attacks. Samson was proud. 
Rahab was immoral. David had an affair. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah was depressed. Jonah was disobedient. Naomi was a widow. Mary was a poor teenager. John the Baptist was eccentric, to say the least. (laughs) Peter was impulsive. The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Thomas had his doubts. Paul executed Christians for a living. Timothy was timid. The list goes on and on. The list of unlikely people God used in powerful ways to tell his story. It's not what you expect. It's not who we would choose. That's the part you really got to remember. You wouldn't be choosing any of these people. But nevertheless, it's what we see. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why? Why does God prefer to use imperfect people to accomplish his purposes? And what I think you see here, and I think you're going to see again and again, is God makes these kind of choices to display his power and glory. He does so so that there will be no doubt that he alone is the source of the miracles that come. That he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Long before we get to Jesus, God begins to unfold that his plan has at its core Grace. Grace. Doing extraordinary things through ordinary people like us. I think God does it this way to truly show us something that Scripture promises. God does it this way to truly show us His strength is indeed made visible in our weakness. God wants us to know. God wants us to experience the truth that the problem of sin is real. It is deep within. But God wants us to know, he wants us to experience that the truth that the problem of sin isn't greater than the promises or the power of God. God does it this way to demonstrate, to prove he really does want to be in relationship with us. He really does want to be in relationship with us. And that's really key because, again, I come back to this. If you had a project, you think about marriage, you're you're, going to go work at a certain place. We have certain criteria about who we want to be in relationship with, right? How many of you are signing up to be best, best friends with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? We have our standards. And what's amazing is God's standard is grace. I want to be in relationship with you. Yes, I see you warts and all. Yep, you're a cheater. Yep, you're a coward. Yep, you are a doubter. And God doesn't say, I'll pass. God says, nope, I'm in relationship with you. I'm in it all the way. God shows us through these stories that he really does want to be in relationship with us. And some of you need to hear that because you may be out there today and you may feel that you are the most unlikely candidate to be used by God. You might believe, someone may have even told you, maybe more than one person, they might have convinced you, you are unqualified. You are not capable of being a part of the story God is writing. If you happen to slide in through the back door, God love you, but there is no way God's working through you. It's too late for you, right? You're too old, aren't you? You've made too many mistakes, haven't you? You had your chances and you blew them, man, come on. You don't have the resources or the gifts. I'm sorry, you just don't have the requisite skills. You don't have the smarts or the talents or the right resources. Not so fast. Don't be so sure. Read the story. Remember how God picked the little guy named David to fight the giant called Goliath. 
Remember how a young, inexperienced girl named Esther was called for such a time as this to save Israel. Remember how Moses didn't get his call to set his people free until he was 80. We are the very people God wants to use. We are the very people God can use, God will use, because God wants to be in relationship with you and me. God's plan of salvation involves ordinary, imperfect people like you and me. But the second point, God's plan to save this world is bigger than you and me. It's about all of us. The most important part of this covenant that God, this relationship that God invites Abraham into is that God wants to bless all the peoples of the earth through this great nation he's going to create. Don't breeze by that. It is the most important part of this relationship. God wants to bless all the peoples of the world through blessing Abraham, his family, this one nation. The Lord, in other words, did not choose Abraham and his family to bless them only. Our God does not choose to build the nation of Israel so he can bless only it. God's plan of salvation is bigger than any one person, one family, or one nation. The Lord chose Abraham. God chose Israel because he had a task for Abraham, for this nation to do. They were blessed to be a blessing. And here's the thing, and you see it in the Bible, and you see it in modern day history. When Israel remembers this, she flourishes. But when she forgets, she declines. Beloved, this is relevant for us if we may go, well, man, I'm glad I'm not part of Israel. Woo, <laughs> glad I'm not part of that. Hello, you are. That's a major part of what Paul wants us to understand, that God has grafted us Gentiles in. We are not the nation of Israel, but we have been grafted into this promise, this relationship given to Abraham. And so understand, this covenant relates to us because the same thing is true for us as the body of Christ, the church. God created us, called the church into being. God calls us to be a blessing to all nations, to love all people to share his grace, to extend his forgiveness, to embody his mercy and compassion to everyone. Jesus calls us in order to send us to the corners of the earth, whether it's across the globe or across the street. We are not, as the body of Christ, to remain in a holy huddle, keeping the blessings of God to ourselves. We are the church, the body of Christ, and we are called to move. And when we move, when we go, we are going out into the world, we are going into the lives of other people to witness to the truth, the love and grace of Jesus Christ by serving them as Jesus would. My friends, when we retreat into our church building, when you think this is what it's all about, your relationship with God, this when we fight among ourselves, or when we only care for and protect our own, we lose our edge. We falsely represent Christ. Dare I say it, we become a curse rather than a blessing. God's plan of salvation involves ordinary, imperfect people like you and me, but God's plan to save this world is bigger than you or me. It's about all of us. And lastly, our part in God's plan in rescuing, reclaiming, and renewing the universe is simply about saying yes. 
Did you notice something when we read Genesis chapter 12? If your Bible's not still open, go back to it. Notice in this plan that God unfolds to Abraham, this invitation into relationship, this covenant. Notice God makes all the promises. See that? Nothing is stipulated for Abraham. Nothing is conditional for Abraham and his family to receive this blessing. Nothing except for one thing. And it should be obvious. They have to say yes. They have to say yes. And, and, and I don't know if you caught this, but here we are again. It's just like the garden. It's just like in the beginning. God lays everything out. We don't do anything. God creates it all, gives it to us all, blesses us, but it's still about a choice. God gives us a choice. And my friends, you're going to see this again and again. It's always the same choice. It's always the same choice. Are we going to trust and follow this God, depend and rely on this God, or are we going to go our own way? And at first, Abraham gets it right, man. He goes. It's, it's mind-blowing, right? He goes. Abraham gives up certainty for uncertainty. God calls Abraham to follow, and Abraham leaves everything he knows to go to a country he's never even heard of. Abraham says yes. And Abraham's yes is repeatedly mentioned in the Bible as a model for us. It's not put that way. The way it's expressed, the word that's used for yes is faith. Abraham's faith is used as a model for us. And that's right. But the problem is we often take this idea of faith and we run with it. And you and I, we have this tendency when it comes to our relationship with God to make faith about our effort. Faith about our will, to make faith about our work. And here's the problem. Here's the problem with that understanding of faith, that it's about our effort, our will, our work. Here's the problem in general, and here's the problem specifically related to Abraham. Um, Abraham starts strong, but he fizzles quickly. If faith is about our work, our will, and our effort, then Abraham's faith disappears pretty fast and for a long time. But that's the thing. When it comes to our relationship with God, saying yes to God, our faith isn't about our work. It isn't about our will. It is not about our effort. It's just about saying yes to God. To put this another way, it's not the quality of Abraham's faith that is noteworthy. When the Bibles point to the faith of Abraham, it is not the quality of his faith that they are pointing to. It is the object of his faith that stands out. Beloved, it's not the quality of our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith that saves us. And this is a, a huge distinction because in every other context outside of our relationship with God, we, when we talk about faith, it's all about us giving faith to something else. We afford faith to something else. We give the object meaning or value by placing our faith in it or behind it, right? So we put our faith in money or we have faith in our good deeds or we have faith in our kids, but when it comes to our relationship with God, faith is different. We don't put our faith in God. God puts his faith in us. Our hope, 
Our yes is not about how strong our faith is. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Our hope, our yes, is not about how strong our faith is. Our hope, our yes, is in God, in how strong, in how true, in how good, in how loving God is. This God who calls into being things that are not. This God who created all things from nothing. This God who can call the dead back to life. In other words, our ability to believe is a response that is only possible because God first believes in us. And the thing, the thing is, when our yes, when we understand that our yes to God is just that, when our yes is not about our work, our will, or our effort, when we understand our yes to God isn't necessarily having all the details, knowing all the answers, when we understand our yes to God is just trusting God to give us what we need to reveal things along the way, when that's how we understand faith, then our faith, no matter how weak or imperfect it may be, will grow. Our faith will grow. Look at Abraham on the other side of the promise, on the other side of the relationship. It's the moment, and you probably are shocked I haven't brought it up, that we can't avoid talking about in these 25 chapters. It's that moment, you're all, maybe some of you were hoping I wasn't going to talk about it, when God asks Abraham on the other side of things to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, I'm sorry, there's other sermons I preached, other conversations we can have maybe on Wednesday, because typically when we get to that part of the story, we all want to spend a lot of time and thought, rightly so, we all want to spend a lot of time and thought on the God side of the situation. We all want to wrestle with, why would God ask this? What kind of God would do this? And I don't want to take away from the validity of that engagement. But I want this morning, we're not going to answer that question, we're not going to go there. Instead, this morning, instead of looking at things from the God side of the situation, let's consider things from Abraham's side. Because the thing that's shocking in this story, more so than what God asks from our standpoint, is that in the midst of this surprising disturbing, unthinkable request, Abraham says yes. Abraham says yes. And if you read that story carefully, it's not a blind faith. It's not a blind faith. Abraham has grown in his yes. He has grown in his apprehension, in his appreciation of the object, of the person of God, of this relationship that he's in. Abraham, in this incredible moment, this moment that all of us are like, I would never want to be put in, Abraham, in this moment, is not focused on what he needs to do or figure out. Isn't that what Abraham does through most of the the 25 chapters, right? What do I got to do to fix this? What do I got to figure out? In this moment, Abraham's not thinking about what he needs to do or how to figure it out. Abraham is totally reliant and dependent upon what God will do. Notice in that story, what Abraham says to his son Isaac when Isaac starts to question what they're doing. Don't miss this. Abraham says, he doesn't lie, he doesn't deny as he's done in the past. Abraham says simply this, God will provide the offering. And later on in the, in the New Testament, in the letter to the Hebrews, it's articulated about Abraham that, 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 that in that moment, the writer says, Abraham trusted that no matter what happened, God would provide. In other words, Abraham in that moment didn't need to know anything else to say yes. He just trusted and depended upon God. And if you know this story, his yes is not wasted. 
For that day, God did provide a lamb in place of Isaac. In place of Isaac, the seedbed of the promise of humanity's salvation. And beloved, 2,000 years later, don't miss the significance of this. 2,000 years later, God provides the Lamb of God in place of all of us. Through God's beloved and only Son, Jesus Christ, he provides the wounded victor to crush the problem of sin, to defeat the power of death. On the very same mountain where Abraham was, a mountain called Mount Moriah, where Jerusalem is built today, the wounded victor hung on the cross and proved once and for all that our yes to God is not in vain. That he does, that he will, always will, provide for us. Man. Beloved, we are ordinary people invited into a relationship with an extraordinary God. In the face of the problem of sin and the reality of death, God has a plan. God has a plan to rescue and reclaim his world. The renewal of our relationship, our covenant with God, began through an average Joe named Abraham through the birth of his son Isaac, and then later his grandson Jacob. And it continues through ordinary, imperfect people like us. God puts his faith in us, providing us the grace we need to rise above and beyond our mistakes, our bad decisions, all of our sin. Rather than give up on us, he continues to affirm his commitment to us to save us despite ourselves but to redeem and change the world through us as well. In Christ, my friends, thanks to Jesus, we are blessed to be a blessing. And all we have to do to experience and share the Lord's blessing, this relationship of faith, hope, and love, is to say yes. To have faith not in ourselves, but in he who is faithful. The God, our Father, who purposes and plans to bring us home. Amen.